and uh, periodically I go to visit her. She lives in the uh, in the city in Manhattan, and we're uh, we're both from from Russia. She's a a little classic um, grandmother, and she um, she likes to stuff me with food more than I can more than I can possibly eat. And uh, one time we got into a conversation, and she says to me, says to me, so. Uh, my, my parents are divorced, so I haven't seen my grandma in a long time. She says, so what, what do you do? I said, I'm a, I'm a rabbi. So she looks at me incredulous and she says, oh my God, a rabbi? No, no. And she calls me, I don't know why she calls me, uh, my name is Yaakov in, uh, in Hebrew. And in Russian, I think the name is Yasha. But for some reason, I don't know why. She calls me Yanusha. She says, Yanusha, no, you go, you're a rabbi? Why couldn't you be a doctor or a lawyer? A rabbi, they don't make any money. So uh, I didn't have anything really what to say. But uh, this class is about the um, what happens if I would have become a doctor. And if you see on the handouts, the title of the class is My Son the Doctor. But uh, it's really a halachic discussion, a halachic perspectives in the performance of therapeutic procedures by children upon parents. <coughs> so let's lay out the issue, and then we can have the discussion. So if you just follow along the handout, it'll probably be easier to e easy to follow the class. So we'll start with the with the sources. The Torah speaks about striking an individual. So in regards, yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. For every negative commandment, in other words, when the Torah says that one is not allowed to do something, one cannot do X, Y, Z, one cannot strike an individual, there is a, uh, there is a punitive action that takes place from the, from the rabbinical court. So the Torah states, uh, as far as that action is concerned, 40 shall you strike him, he shall not add lest he strike him an additional blow beyond those, these, and your brother will be degraded in your eyes. The Torah here is speaking about a person who is appointed by the rabbinical court to administer the 39 lashes for which one gets if he transgresses the negative commandment. Now just to preface that the, 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 this, this punitive action of the 39 lashes, in order for it to take place, there are a lot of details that have to happen. And it's not, it's, it, because of the details that are necessary, it's not so prevalent. As there has to be two kosher witnesses that are present, they have to give a warning, and the person who does the act has to acknowledge the warning, and within a second, or less than a second, perform the act, saying that he does the act anyway, even though he's going to receive the punishment that the, wit the witnesses warned him about. So if a person does that, and these two witnesses come to court, and they are proved to be kosher witnesses, then this is the punishment that's, a, that, that's administered. But in regards to this punishment, the Torah says, that this person who is the agent of the court, he cannot give more than what the court prescribes. More than what pres the, per the, the court prescribes, he cannot administer any more lashes than that. For why not? Because perhaps maybe your brother will be degraded in your eyes. So Rashi, I, um, I apologize, I didn't write a bibliography at the end. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of rabbis, a lot of... Um, <laughs> A lot of sources which are quoted here, which may not be familiar, but uh, they are they are um, 
definitely sound, and uh, I can, if, if you ask the question in the middle of class, I can, I can uh, tell you who, who they are. So Rashi, who explains the, the, the Chumash, who explains the Torah, quotes a, the Talmudic statement that the derivation for not striking an individual comes from this, from this verse that we just read in the, in the, in the, in the first in the first thing in the outline, in, in A. That one, according to law, is not allowed to strike another individual. And the source for this is learned from this verse. The precept is recorded in the court of law, as it's quoted in the handout. The precept says like this, it is prohibited to strike one's friend. If one does, one transgresses lest he strike him, quote-unquote, which is the verse that, that was stated. If the Torah was insistent upon an insurgent that he should not be struck, more than his evil deed deserves, certainly this is the case with the righteous individual. This is what it says in the Code of Law, which is in the section entitled the Choshen Mishpat. <clears throat> that one is not allowed to strike somebody, and the Code of Law also continues and says that if one even raises one's hand to strike someone, he's considered to be an evil person. As we see from Moses, that uh, when Moses encountered the two individuals that were having a fight with each other in Exodus, he said to one of them, evil person, why do you strike your friend? Even though he hadn't struck him yet. So from there we learn that one is not allowed to even raise one's hand to strike somebody else. So this is the first, this is the first law. The first law in the Torah is that one is not allowed to strike somebody else. Can't hit someone else. The second law, which is B, is striking one's parents. Now the Torah is extremely stringent, very strict about striking one's parents. And it says as follows, the Torah states, one who strikes his father or mother should surely, should surely be, put, be put to death. It's capital punishment. If one strikes one's parents, the punishment is capital punishment. And again, it's not so prevalent for it to happen because all the details that I described have to happen in, in, in the situation. In other words, again, the son has to have a warning from the witnesses and he has to acknowledge the warning and he has to say, even though this is going to happen to me, I'm willing to do it within the second and then perform the act in front of the witnesses in order for this to happen. But be that as it may, the Torah considers this to be a very, very, very strict thing, and <coughs> it's liable for capital punishment. And the Talmud comments that when the Torah states that one is required to receive capital punishment without specification of its nature, the intention is for the method of strangulation. Now, there are four different types of capital punishments, and uh, this is the method that's used for one's, one's parents. If anybody, by the way, has a question in the middle, please... Feel free to ask. Subsequently, this injunction is also recorded in the court of law. And what does it say? And this is where at the bottom of the, of, the handout, uh, of the handout. Also, one who strikes one's father or mother when they are alive, whether it be a man or a woman, they are liable to receive uh, strangulation. Specifically, this is the case when they inflict a wound. However, if a wound is not inflicted, they only incur a negative precept in the same manner as striking another Jew. If one strikes them on the ear or renders them mute, one is obligated capital punishment. This is because it is impossible to affect that state without a wound which occurs in the inner part of the ear. So now we're up to page two. So basically it's like this. There is two precepts, there are two injunctions in the Torah. One is that one is not allowed to strike one's friend. Now it's one's fellow Jew, one is not allowed to strike them. You can't hit somebody else. That's one. Number two is, in addition to that, there's an additional prohibition in the Torah that one, uh, one is not allowed to strike his parents. Okay? <clears throat> so when one strikes his parents, there's two things that, that God is not happy about. 
One thing he's not happy about is, is that one is stri- striking another, fe- another fellow human being. The second thing is, is that one is striking one's parents. Now, given, that, given this fact, there, the issue that arises is as follows. Now, this is at the, at the top of page two of our handout. <clears throat> if one's child is a doctor or a nurse, can they administer injections, blood work, or any other type of intrusive procedure to their parents for therapeutic purposes? That's one. And is it permitted to perform a mi- minor or major operation? Given the fact that one is not allowed to strike one's parents, and one is not a, a, the, the injunction is that one is not allowed to inflict a parent with a wound, can a child act as a doctor and administer thera- uh, therapeutic procedures towards their parents? And that includes blood work, giving an injection. For example, if let's say if let's say if one's, one's parents is a di- diabetic, or they need an IV, or they need some blood taken, because the Torah does not allow it, perhaps maybe it's better to get somebody else. Can can a child do such a thing? Can a child act as a doctor or a nurse or a medic in such a situation? You have a question mark? Okay. So that's the issue, basically, and that's the that's the focus. That's the focus of the class, and that's the issue that I'd, I'd like to discuss. So that means we have to find out what is what is what is the definition of strike, right? What does it mean to strike? Right. And by the question of the doctor, that means ordering the test is the same as doing the test. Uh, I'm not sure what what ordering the test is. The why? Really draws blood. Really draws no, the blood. No, but like my mother was. The, the, the order will be written to have the blood drawn. That's in the hospital situation. But what happens if you're in a situation where you're at home, and uh, and the and the you know it's better for the parents not to go to the hospital, and the, perhaps maybe the child can perform some kind of medical procedure that would be beneficial to the parents, or oh. save them some time and some money. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, in the hospital, I guess if they don't do it. Even in the office, the question is if I ask, if I send one a blood test. Or even something as simple. That's right. also checking right. the blood sugars too. So right. So that's if you're if you're a doctor, doctor. Even if you're not a doctor, can you help your parent check their blood sugars by sticking? Right. Them? Right. Can you right? Can you do that? Or also, if you're a nurse, you don't have to be a doctor. Let's say you're a nurse, or let's say you're a medic, yeah. or an emergency person, technician. Technician. Yeah. So can you can can you can you do these things given the fact that the donor said prohibits it? Okay, so the core of the issue, this is the number three on, our, on page two of the handout. The core ish of the issue, as always, rests in the following discussion of the Talmud. Now, the Talmud really has something to say about this. It spoke about it, and this is what it says. I'd like to just read it inside, and then we'll, uh, we'll discuss it. Talmud states as follows. They inquired, may his son let blood of his father. Now, <clears throat> I'm not sure I tried to inquire about this procedure, and I don't know if somebody can help me. Uh, the letting of the blood, I guess that's... that's uh, Leech, you know, leeching, taking out blood. I don't know what the uh, therapeutic purposes of that are, if, if it's beneficial. Yeah? There are times when a leech is used so that the wound heals, and whatever the leech does, the wound heals better than if the leech doesn't do it. Uh-huh. So sometimes it's done that way. Okay. So they still use okay. it? It's come back Yeah. I mean, I, I saw it on the internet in some, you know, some... Uh, Arab, uh, and, and another. Yeah, okay. Is it? Yeah. So is that standard procedure? No. It's not standard procedure. No. But okay, but that's, that was done in the time. Well, in the time. Days it was. Yeah. 
I know it's done in some places too. I mean, I, I, I saw some some site of uh, some Arab hospital where they uh, they had a list of 20 professors who are experts in cupping and and, and taking and doing these type of things. Well, even even also besides wounds now for chronic pain management, they may be doing that. Mm -hmm. It's investigational. Very complex. The maggots probably will go. Well, anyway, be that as it may, so the Talmud inquires. Can't, may a son let the blood of his father? Right? That's the question. That is our question. So the Talmud says like this. Rav Masna said, Rav Masna is one of the Amaroyim, which are one of the rabbis in the Talmud, you shall love your fellow as yourself. So we know that we know that verse. That's a famous verse. You shall love your fellow as yourself. That's all he said. So in the parentheses, Rashi, who also wrote a commentary on the Talmud, explains as follows. The Jewish people are not warned about acts upon their fellows unless they would not want them perform, performed upon themselves. So you should love your fellow as yourself. So if you would do something to yourself, then you could do it to your fellow, because that's called loving your fellow as yourself. In other words, one is not allowed to do those things to one's, one's friend, <coughs> only if they wouldn't do, the, to do it to themselves. But they would do it to themselves, then it's permissible. That's what Rav Masna said. Rav Dimi Barchinuna said, it's also another rabbi, one who strikes an animal shall make restitution, and one who strikes a person shall be put to death. Just as one who strikes an animal for therapeutic purposes is exempt, so too one strikes a person for the equivalent purpose is also exempt. Here the Talmud is making an analysis of the juxtaposition of two statements in, this, in, the, in, the, uh, in the same verse. I think it's in the same verse, in Leviticus. The Talmud states <coughs> that one has to make restitution if he damages somebody else's property in this case happened to be an animal. And also in the same statement, the Talmud says that one is not allowed to strike a person. Therefore, one can make an analogy that if one strikes one's property, if one damages one's property in such a manner where he doesn't have to, uh, put rest he doesn't have to pay for it, there is no restitution necessary. For example, if he does it for therapeutic purposes, if somebody's animal is, is, uh, needs, uh, their, if their leg is broken or they need something to be done for therapeutic purposes, so then one would not have to pay for that, for that service. As a matter of fact, probably the person who owns the animal would have to pay for that service to be done to his animal. So too, one is not liable, says Rav Dimi, if he strikes a person in such a manner where, where the same wound, which inflicted into, uh, onto an animal, would one would not have to pay for. Okay, is that clear? Yeah. To answer your question, at least for me, that's clear, but it occurs to me in reading this, uh, has this been generalized to say cause pain to another? In other words, what does strike mean? Yeah, we're going to get we're going to we're going to discuss the issue of what does striking mean. Okay. But here, at, at least we at least from the initial question of the of the Talmud, we see that it means letting blood in the most simple form. If you let blood come out of an individual, as you give you 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 admit you you, you uh, he has a cut of some sort, or you do leaching or then that's not, that seems to be not permissible. The, point, the purpose of my question is perhaps not letting blood, but if a person has a broken bone, sending the bone, it may not let blood, but it can cause considerable discomfort, but it's necessary for the healing to take place. So we're just setting the bone. Right, yes. That's, that is the Talmud's question. The Talmud is asking that we're, that the, the doctor or the person, whoever he is, is performing some kind of therapeutic procedure, 
and in that therapeutic procedure he is doing something which otherwise would not be permissible to do, can he do it? That's the Talmud's question. So Rav Masna said, love your neighbor as yourself, you can do it. Rav Dimi also said that you see from this juxtaposition in the verse that you can also do it. However, now the Talmud relates two stories. One, the Talmud says, Rav did not allow his son to remove a splinter from his skin. He had a splinter in his skin, he did not allow his son to do it. Second story is, Mar, the son of Ravina, did not allow his son to lance his boil. Perhaps he would inflict a wound, which for him would be an inadvertent transgression of a prohibition. So even though the first two, the first two Amorayim, the first two rabbis, seem to indicate that it's permissible, the second two rabbis in the Talmud seem to say that they did not allow their children to do this. And the reason for it being is because it might come to an inadvertent transgression of a prohibition. So the Talmud now asks, if so, others should be hindered as well. So if that's so, if we're afraid that perhaps maybe the child will do something that's wrong, right? inadvertently he will cause damage that he's not supposed to, so then why are we worried about every single other person? Like we said in the introduction, every other person is also not allowed to strike his fellow, per, uh, his fellow friend, right? So why are we worried that any doctor that performs any therapeutic measure, any procedure, perhaps maybe inadvertently he will do something which, he, which he's not allowed to do, and, and, and he will, he will uh, transgress this prohibition? That's the Talmud's question. So the Talmud answers, for the others, the inadvertent wound would result in a transgression of a negative commandment. While for the son, it would resu- result in a capital punishment. It seems that the Talmud is saying that for a regular person, it's, much, it's less severe. It's only a negative commandment. However, for the child to do something like that, it's much more of a severe thing if he makes a mistake. So therefore, we, we let maybe somebody else to do it instead, instead of the child, because we don't, we don't, we don't want him to take the chance on the severity of the, uh, of the matter. That's the Talmud, just, from the beginning to the end. What if he just does it with the child without the presence of witnesses present? Well, I mean, the, the question here is posed is whether he's allowed to do it. The question is not really whether we're going to strangle him at the end, whether we're going to give him punishment. The question is, we're talking about people who, who, who are keeping the Torah. They want, they want to do what's right. The question is whether they're, allow, whether they're allowed to do it. In any situation where there are no witnesses, right? Well, I understand what you're saying, but on the other hand, even the people, but you said the read that it's a, it's a much less offense for the people that aren't the children, but it's still wrong for them too. So it's the same principle for whether you're the son or you're not the Okay, son. that's a good point. Seems to be, well, it, the, the Talmud here says, let me just re- repeat, repeat the question. The Talmud seems to conclude that it's wrong for everybody, right? It's wrong for other individuals and it's wrong for children too. So if it's wrong, so then you can't do it. What's the difference, what's the severity, what, what the severity is? The answer to the question is, is that the t- let, let's, let's see the analysis in, in number two. Right. Me. <coughs> may, may I observe, there is always a witness. No, 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 that I understand. No, but what, what Rabbi Bronson was saying was that if these people are, I want to follow the Torah, they're not going to do it wrong, but that applies whether you're a child or whether you're an agent. Let's see the analysis. Okay, A. It is clear from this discussion that when one inflicts a, a wound for therapeutic purposes, one does not transgress the Torah prohibition. In fact, one performs a mitzvah. Okay, so the first thing that we see from the Talmud statement is, is that <clears throat> even though one is not allowed to strike one's fellow friend, and one is not allowed to strike one's parents, 
However, when one does it for purposes of therapy, when one is acting on, for their benefit, right, then one is allowed to do it. It's permissible. Not only is one allowed to do it, but it's a mitzvah also to do it. But that, 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 that's against what it just said uh, about Rav and Ravina. Right. Let's 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 uh, let's continue. It seemed the, the last two the last two rabbis seem to say that you're not allowed to do it. <coughs> but what's the reason you can't? When you say it is clear from this discussion, what discussion are you referring to? From the discussion of the Talmud, discussion of the Talmud, which was in number one in, in uh, the key, which is entitled the key in the middle of the page, it says the core of the issue rests in the following discussion of the Talmud. So it's clear from the discussion of the Talmud that it's a mitzvah to do it. And I'll tell you why. That's Bela asked the question, but it seems to be the, 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 the second two rabbis say that it's, that it's not permissible. But what did the Talmud say? The Talmud said the following words. For others, um, the inadvertent wound would result in a transgression of a negative commandment. The Talmud is saying as follows. The actual procedure itself, one is allowed to do. The second two rabbis, why is it that they did not allow their children to do it to them? Because perhaps, maybe, inadvertently, they will wound them in a way which is not part of the procedure. Right? As the actual, it seems the Talmud is saying that the actual procedure itself is a mitzvah. It's permissible to do it. One does not transgress striking one's friends and striking one's parents. However, however, we're afraid that perhaps, maybe, the doctor will make a mistake and inadvertently he will inflict them with a wound which was not necessary. Because we're afraid of that, therefore, the last two rabbis did not allow their children to do it. And they stated specifically the reason for it, as the Talmud says. For others, the inadvertent wound would result in a transgression of a negative commandment. The inadvertent wound would result in that. <coughs> so therefore, that answers your question also, Mark, because well, your, your question was that it seems from the Talmud that it's not permissible for, bo- for, for, for the children to do it from the last two rabbi statements. The answer is, it is permissible, even according to the last two rabbis. The second two rabbis are saying, Rav and Mar are saying that it is permissible. They're afraid that perhaps maybe inadvertently the doctor will make a mistake and inflict a wound which is not necessary. And therefore, therefore, they say, that for the child this inadvertent act will be much more severe. Right? Because if he does it inadvertently, then he is performing an incidental act a transgression, which if it would be done on purpose, would, would, would result in capital punishment. However, if it's just a regular doctor who's performing the, uh, the, uh, the therapy for a stranger, then the inadvertent mistake would only result in a negative commandment. Therefore, we, therefore it's preferable, at least according to the second two rabbis, for, for, the, uh, for the other person to perform it instead of the parents. So the children. All right, thank you. Okay, so let, let's continue. Now, how do we know that it's a mitzvah to be a doctor? So, it says in the, uh, in the Torah, uh, closer to the bottom of the page of the, uh, of the page number two. If men quarrel and one strikes his fellow, he shall provide for healing. So, the Torah commands that if somebody does damage to someone by striking them, he has to pay for his, doctor bill, his doctor's bills. So, again, the time that there was no, I guess, there was no insurance. Right, the, the, the other person, uh, there was nobody. Insurance wasn't even if the insurance would cover, you could still sue the other person. But the Torah says specifically that you have to pay for the healing. On this, the Talmud comments, and this is in the code of law. The Torah granted permission for doctors to heal, and it is a mitzvah. 
This appears in the court of law in the section Yerodeh, which is a, a quote from the Talmud. Okay, and the last point on page number two we just discussed. So now we're up to three. Okay, I'm not sure. I think we're going, we're going to... I want to skip the number three so that we have enough time to uh, to discuss the issue. But maybe we'll do the beginning of the, uh, page three. So there are really four ways to understand the Talmud. Even though it seems to be a very simple Gemara, very simple Talmudic statement, there are actually is a dispute of how to understand it. And there are four ways to understand the Talmud. Now, basically speaking, the structure of the statements of the Talmud are as follows. First two rabbis said... It's okay, you could do it, right? Second two rabbis said, no, we prefer you don't do it, okay? Two against two, that's, the, that's, the, that, that's what the Talmud is saying. Now, there are four ways to understand what the Talmud is talking about. First way, unless we'll try it, we'll see, do the first way. The Rambam, who is Maimonides, which is quoted in the tour, which is also a, another, another court of law that, was, that, that preceded Rabbi Yosef Karo, writes as follows. One who draws blood from one's parents or is a doctor and cuts flesh or a limb is not liable. However, even though this is the case, preferably one should not do it even to remove a splinter because perhaps one inflict them with a wound. When does this rule apply? When there is someone else to perform the task. However, if there is no one else and they are in pain, one may perform the necessary procedure in accordance with what, what they permit. So the Rambam is introducing a new detail into the discussion. Okay? Our discussion is whether a child can be a doctor. What happens if there is another doctor standing right next to the child that, just as, that is just as competent and can perform the same procedure? Okay? So then, even though it is a mitzvah to perform the therapeutic procedure, can the, can, can the child still do it, even though there's someone else to do it? So the Rambam says, like we just read, that he can't. If there is someone else present, then the child can't do it. Now, how did the Rambam understand the Talmud? What is the Talmud, say, what is the Talmud saying according to the Rambam? So the first explanation of the Talmud, according to Rav Yosef Kara, which is the, we're continuing on, on page 3, explains that the Rambam understood that all agree. However, the first set of Amorayim is espousing their opinion in the case when someone else is not available, and the second is not. In other words, the first, the, the uh, Rav Yosef Kara understood the Rambam, Maimonides, as learning the Talmud as follows. Now let's just repeat again. The, the structure of the Talmud is, the first two rabbis say it's okay, the second two rabbis say, it's not okay. Okay? The, the, my mind is introduced another element is, it depends on whether or not there is someone else present, another competent doctor present that can perform the same procedure as the child. So, Rabbi Yosef Karo understands that all the rabbis agree to the Rambam. Now, they agree to the explanation. That when there is no one else present, the child can perform the procedure. When there is someone else present, the child cannot perform the procedure. So now, the first two rabbis said, it's okay. In what case were they talking about? When there was no one else available. The second two rabbis said, it's not okay. In what case were they talking about? When there's another doctor available. So according to the Rabbi Yosef Karo, 
the way that the, 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 the uh, Rambam learns the, the Talmud is, is that everybody agrees, all the rabbis in the Talmud agree on the law, except that they were discussing different cases, and therefore they espoused different opinions. Okay, B. The Ba, this is in the, actually in Hebrew it's pronounced the Bach, but I saw it in a, in a, a, a scholarly, scholarly uh, dissertation. This is the way it was spelled, so this is the way I spelled it. The Ba is a commentary on, the, uh, on, one of the, on the, a previous code of law. Understands the Rambam in a different fashion. He understands the Rambam learned in a, in a different way. But the Maimonides had a different explanation of the Gemara. The Rif and the Rush. These are also uh, early Rishonim, early scholars who lived from the, uh, between the 900 and the 1500. There's, there's a group of scholars which are called the Rishonim. <coughs> which lived in a certain time period between the, the 900 and the uh, and, and 1500s, I think. And these are the names. One, one of their names is, is the Rif, which, which is an acronym which stands for Rabbeinu Alfasi, our teacher Alfasi. And the Rush is Rabbeinu Asher, our teacher Asher. His name was Asher. That's, that's the way he was called as the Rush. They say as follows. The question was posed on whether or not one is allowed to draw blood from one's parents. And the final decision is that Rav did not allow it, etc. So the way that they quote the Talmud is as follows. The question was posed, and the second two rabbis said, you're not allowed to do it. So it seems like they are saying as what? Now again, let's repeat again. There's two, the, the Talmud says the first two rabbis say it's okay, the second two rabbis say it's not okay. So these two, this the Rif and the Rush say that the question was posed, and the conclusion was that you're not allowed to do it. In which case? Well, you, that you're not allowed to do it. And what about the first two rabbis? What did they hold? Was there another doctor there? Well, that's the explanation that we said according to Maimonides. But it seems like from this, if I make the following statement, the question was posed on whether one is not allowed to do it, and the conclusion was that one is not allowed to do it, seems to imply that the first two rabbis said that you are allowed to do it, and the second two rabbis said that you cannot do it. But the way you wrote the, about the mark, uh, all it says was he wouldn't let his son do it because he was afraid he was going to make an inadvertent wound, which is different than saying he, that the son can't do it. He just didn't want his son to do it. Well, because he might do it, because maybe he might inflict an inadvertent wound, therefore he's not allowed to do it. He didn't want him to do it. It doesn't say he didn't want it. He did not let him, right? He didn't let him. How did I write it? Because he might make an inadvertent wound. Well, if he wouldn't make an inadvertent wound, he could do it. No, but because he might, he wouldn't let him. So you can understand that as he was being cautious, or you can understand that as he did not allow it. No, it's, he's not allowed to. That's it. It's prohibited. Said no, period. Didn't say because he might make it. The Rob said he's not allowed to do it. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. Right. And the fourth case. So is it possible that some other uh, people might have let their kids do it? In other words, could it be that just Rabbi One said? I no, this is it. If the if the if the Talmud presents this, then this is it. This is this is this is, this is these are all the opinions that are relevant to the issue. If this is this is what's in the Talmud, so that's what's relevant to the issue. But I mean, would would this, would would Mar say that uh, that I wouldn't let my son do it? But I'm not saying that some other 
No, the Talmud is relating it. The Talmud is relating it by saying that, that, that he did not allow his son to do it. So because therefore, that applies to everybody? Right, right. Because That's the way we're understanding it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so you can learn that is is he was cautious. So you can learn that is he meant that you, it's it's prohibited to do it. Why he just said it's prohibited? He didn't let Okay. So now the statement of the question was raised, and then the conclusion was seems to imply that there's a dispute in the Talmud. So it seems to be that the Rif and the Rush are learning that the first two rabbis are disagreeing with the second two rabbis. The first two rabbis who say that it's permissible disagree with the second two rabbis who say it's not permissible. right? And since they don't specify in which case it is permissible, it's not permissible, therefore we can conclude, or the, 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 uh, the, the Rabbi Yosef Karo concludes, that in any case, the last two rabbis did not allow it to be done. Whether there was somebody else present or there wasn't somebody else present. It doesn't matter, right? The first two rabbis said it's okay, and the second two rabbis said no matter what, no matter what the case is, you cannot do it. The children, children are not allowed to administer any therapeutic um, procedure, if, even if there is no one else. That seems to be the understanding if, if the statement is made in that way. Yeah, not to, yeah, I'm going to clarify that, yeah. Okay, so those are two basic ways to understand the Talmud. I think we're going we're gonna to skip the rest because it's, uh, it, it's going to get, uh, we're going to run out of time. So we're going to go to page, we're going to go to page four. Okay, so let's review again. There's two ways to understand the Talmud. Either the Talmud is saying that a child that under any circumstance is not allowed, the conclusion of the Talmud is that a child under any circumstance is not allowed to perform any medical or therapeutic procedure on their, cho- on their children, whether there is someone else competent present or not. And the other way to understand it is, if there is somebody else competent to perform that procedure, one is allowed, and if there isn't somebody else competent, then uh, one is not allowed. And then the, if there is, if, one more time, sorry. If there is someone else present, the child is not allowed to do it. If there isn't anybody else present, then the child is not allowed to do it. Okay, now what is the law? Page four. What, what is the law that is, that is recorded in the code of law, Jewish code of law, in, in uh, Shulchan Aruch? It says as follows. If there was a splinter embedded in one's parent's skin, one may not remove it, lest one inflict the wound. The same rule applies if one is a blood drawer or a doctor. One may not draw blood or cut their limbs, even if their intention is for therapy. So it seems like that the code of law understands the Talmud in the second way that we said. That under any circumstances, since it doesn't specify the circumstance, the child is not, a, not allowed to perform any therapeutic, um, any therapeutic procedures on their parents. That is what the code of law says. Now there was a rabbi by the name of Ramosha Isilis, who is in, uh, the Ashkenazic rabbi, who was a rabbi in Poland, who wrote glasses on the, on, on the Shulchan Aruch, on the code of law, and the, Ash- the Jews of the Ashkenazim usually follow his opinion. He says as follows in the second paragraph. When does the aforementioned law apply? In the situation where there is no one else to perform the task. However, when, when there is no one else present and one's parent is in pain, one can draw blood and cut, limb, cut limbs in accordance with their permission. So the Ramah, this rabbi is saying in the, in the court of law, in the name of the Maimonides, that a child is allowed to do it when there is no one else present. He can perform the procedures. 
when does the aforementioned law apply when there is no one else to perform the task? New situation when there is no one else to perform the task. Present. Yeah, but that's the same as saying, however, when there is no one else present. Well, in a situation where there is no one else present, uh, no one else to, per, uh, per, to perform the task, when there is no one else, oh, if there is no, it, this is, I'm not sure if I, if I wrote it here correctly, but the Ramos says, if there is no one else present, then he can do it. If there is no one else present, then he cannot do it. If I, if I wrote it incorrectly, I'm sorry. Okay, so this is the law. Now, the considerations. First of all, and I think we, uh, Rabbi Goldman said that I should point this out first. So maybe we'll skip to page, um, to page 7. Number 7 at the top of the page. What happens if it's a life and death situation? Okay, so there are two there are two opinions. The code of law itself says, the code of law itself says that one is not allowed to perform this. The uh, in, in the child, under any circumstances, whether there is someone else present or there isn't anyone present, any, anyone else present, the child is not allowed to perform the task, the therapeutic uh, task on their on their children. <coughs> However, the Ramah says that it depends. If there is no one else to do it, then the child can do it. The question is, what happens if it's a life and death situation? What happens if it's an emergency operation? What happens if the person is going to die if the procedure is not done and there's no one else present? So can one do it? So according to the Rabbah, he can do it. But according to the code of law, which perhaps maybe we should, we should be suspect for, one cannot do it, right? Maybe yes, maybe no. So what, what, what is the situation? What, what is the law in this situation? The law is that when it comes to a life and death situation, there one does not have to, one does not have to, uh, the law is not applicable. The Torah says as follows, the Torah says, V'chai bahem, and you shall live by the Torah. So the Talmud says, you shall live by the Torah, V'lo yamas bahem, but you can't, you don't have to die by the Torah. With the exception of three things, idol worship, murder, and illicit relationships, one does not have to martyr himself for the Torah. So therefore, when it comes to a situation where it's a life and death situation, then there are no mitzvot. There are no mitzvot to keep. The focus, the primary focus is to save the person's life. <coughs> so, therefore, if the child, if the parent is, if the parent's life is in danger, then the child can perform whatever procedure that is necessary. Our whole discussion revolves around procedures that are not life and death procedures. Like we said, like injections, blood work, and things like that. But when it comes to life and death operation, of course, the child can do it. And not only that, even if there is somebody standing next to him that is a doctor that is just as competent, and he has his scrubs on, and he's willing to do it also, the child can do it himself. He doesn't have, the other doctor does not have to do it. Uh, this is quoted from uh, one of the responses, the Chuvot the van Hagot. And also I spoke this over with uh, a... Um, person who's an expert on, on uh, medical ethics, Rabbi J. David Bleich, who's a professor in Cardoza Law School. So how can you allow that because there's <coughs> someone actually present at the time? Right, so the concept is as follows. The concept is, this is an interesting concept. Let's take Shabbat, for example. So one, one is not allowed to do certain things on Shabbat, right? 
So since one is not allowed to do certain things on Shabbat, so how is one to, one to get to the hospital? If let's say one's, uh, one's wife is having a, a child, or perhaps maybe a person is having a heart attack, right? how do they get to the hospital if, they, if, if it's Shabbat? There's all sorts of things, all sorts of, uh, categories, of w- w- categories of work that one is not allowed to perform in, 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 such, in, in such a way that one, that one needs to do in order to get to the hospital. How does one do that? So the rule that applies is what we just said. When it comes to pikuach nefesh, when it comes to the danger of life, there is no Shabbat, right? One can do whatever is necessary to save the person's life or to get one's wife to the hospital because one, uh, a, a person who's having a baby is considered to be in, in, da- in such a danger that one is allowed to transgress the Shabbat for. So one is allowed to do anything on Shabbat. But the question is, is it, do we look at it as if there is no Shabbat at all, that Shabbat does not exist, or do we look at it as whatever is necessary to do can be done on Shabbat that much and no more? So for example, let's say right, that I, have, I need to make a phone call, I need to call the hospital, I need to call the emergency, right? So am I allowed to make the phone call? Yes, because the person's life is in danger. I can make the phone call. The question is, do I have to put into the memory of the phone the number of the emergency before Shabbat, and there I'll dial less numbers on this phone, or can I just dial the number straight on Shabbat, and I don't have to program the phone in advance? Or, let's say I drive my car to the hospital, right? And I arrive at the hospital. Now I don't need my car. Can I turn off the car? Because it's not necessary for the procedure. It's not necessary for the saving of life. Okay? So that depends on whether how we look at Shabbat. Do we look at when there's a danger to life, do we look at as if there is no Shabbat? Right? And therefore one doesn't have to think about it at all. I can do whatever is necessary. Or do we look at it as if there is Shabbat. However, those acts which are specifically necessary for the situations can be performed. So as far as Shabbat is concerned, I don't know what the, what, what, what the final halachic ruling is. I, 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 I didn't research it for this class. But as far as this situation is concerned, when it comes to the danger of life, right, and we have two doctors that are standing ready to perform the operation, we have the son and we have the other person. We look at it as if there are no prohibitions that exist in inflicting wounds to people, right? If they don't exist. Therefore, it doesn't matter who does it. It doesn't matter whether the other person does it or the child does it. It's irrelevant. It's immaterial. Because we look at it because of the danger of life as if it's not there. So one example that Rabbi, Rabbi Bleich gave me was, and this is his consideration, I didn't research the, the issue 100%. <coughs> his consideration is, is, he says, the diabetics, he says, are considered to be a holoshiyesh basakana. A holoshiyesh basakana means it is a person who is in danger of his life. The reason for it being is he said that every diabetic, in his estimation, dies of diabetes, unless they get hit by a car or something else happens to them. But every person who's a diabetic is, in, is, is, is considered to be in danger of life. Every time their blood sugar goes low, causes tissue damage. And eventually can contribute to the cardiovascular complications that take place as a result of that, uh, of, uh, of that, uh, of that state. So therefore, since a 
diabetic is considered one who's in, somebody who's in danger of life, in his estimations, in Rabbi Black's estimation, then there is no consideration of whether you know it's apparent or whether you're inflicting a wound or not. Because every time you administer a therapeutic procedure, such as an injection to a diabetic, it's considered to be like you're saving his life. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether the child does it or somebody else does it, whether there is somebody else present or there isn't somebody else present, the child can do it. Okay, so that's the situation of the, uh, the danger, danger to life. Now, um, let's get back to... Page number four. <clears throat> the opinion of most of the most of the responsa, most of the, the, the rabbis, the halachic ruling, contemporary halachic ruling, is <clears throat> that even though there's a dispute in the actual code of law itself on whether a child is allowed to perform a medical procedure or not. Uh, when there is somebody else present or not, their opinion is, is that without consideration, without other considerations, one should follow, one should be stringent to follow the law of the, the statement of the court of, the court of law, uh, court of law the, uh, Rabbi Yosef Cairo himself. And that is, is that the child is not allowed to perform any therapeutic procedure when there is somebody else present that's competent to do it. That's the, that's the Jewish law. Given when there aren't any other considerations. One consideration we've discussed already is life and death situation. But if there are no other considerations, all things being equal, the law is, contemporary Jewish law is, and when there is somebody else that's competent, that's present, that can perform the procedure, the child, because of everything that we just said until now, is not allowed to perform the procedure on their parents. And that is injections or... Um, well, perhaps maybe we'll discuss injections specifically, blood work, or anything else that causes a wound to their, to their parents. Now, the first consideration, or the second consideration that I want to discuss is here on page four, is what happens if the child's treatment is complementary, right? The doctor says, no problem, I'll do the procedure, $3,000. The child says, dad, anything, anything for you, no problem, I'll do it for free. So if he's willing to do it for free, and the other doctor is, is, says, I will charge $3,000 for the procedure, is that a consideration for the law? Can that be considered as if there is nobody else? If I have to actually take money out of my pocket, right, to pay for the procedure for somebody else, maybe it's considered like there is no one else. Right? Let's say it was $5 million that I have to pay, and I didn't have the money, and there's no way for me to raise it. Then I for sure understand that it's as if there's no one else, even though there's no other person to do it. Right? And he's standing somewhere in Uganda and he could charge me $5 million to do the procedure. If that's the case, that's considered like there is no one else. So what happens if the child is willing to do it for free and the other doctor wants to charge for the services? So factually speaking, the first point on this consideration, if a rabbinical injunction is in question, monetary considerations are inappropriate. There are some poskim who are the poskim are those uh, contemporary halachic deci- deciders, rabbis, who are able to decide on this issue, who have the opinion that one needs to part with one's with all of one's funds rather than transgress a rabbinic injunction. Words, if monetary considerations are are irrelevant when it comes to the Torah, the Torah itself, 
says that we have to perform the, uh, the right thing works in any other government in any other law of the land the fact that it's going to cost me money is irrelevant if I go to the judge and I say look uh, it's going to cost me money so the judge is going to say so that's the law you have to keep it so therefore if we're talking about a rabbinic injunction it's inappropriate to discuss monetary considerations in addition every rabbinic injunction is really a Torah prohibition too as the Torah states, and that's in the second point of this consideration, in accordance with the Torah that they will teach you and the law that they will tell you, shall you do. Do not veer from the matter that they will tell you, right or left. So in Deuteronomy it says explicitly that whatever the rabbis decree, one should listen. Therefore, accompanied with every single rabbinical law is also a Torah law. So therefore, monetary, consideration, monetary considerations are irrelevant because one cannot transgress the law of God when it comes to money. Nevertheless, third point in the, in the consideration, we do find instances in the Talmud that the sages were lenient because of monetary considerations. So how does that work? The reason for this is, is that all rabbinical decrees assume different character traits. Hence, what is applicable for one is not necessarily applicable for the other. In other words, the rabbis can institute a law and say within the institution of this law that if there are monetary considerations, the law is not applicable. Right? And if the rabbis can decree a law and say this is the law, and if they don't specify under what circumstances, then monetary considerations are irrelevant. If it costs me money, it costs me money. That's the law. However, the rabbis can make a decree and say that when in the, specify in the decree that when there are monetary considerations, then the law doesn't apply. We only institute the law in such a situation where there is no, there is no financial loss involved. Right? So therefore there are different, in the Talmud we find different precepts, rabbinical injunctions, which sometimes monetary considerations are relevant and sometimes they're not. In this situation they didn't specify. So therefore it would seem, it would seem that if money is, con- is concerned, the child is willing to do the procedure for free. And there's another doctor who wants to charge, then you have to take the other doctor, even though it's going to cost money. However, which is the last point of this consideration, if the conclusion of our discussion is that the requirement is only a stringency, then financial exposure is a consideration in terms of the fact that we will treat the situation as if there was no one else available to perform the task. These two responses, which are quoted here on the bottom in the parentheses, say as follows. How do we understand the Talmud? This gets back to your point, Mark. Why those, those second two rabbis, why did they not allow their children to perform the procedure on themselves? Why not? Was it because, what? That could be. That could be, but it also could be the reasons because we're afraid of inadvertent prohibition or uh, transgression of the law. So there's two ways to understand it. Either because they were afraid of inadvertent prohibi- uh, transgression of the law, that if the child makes a mistake within the therapeutic procedure, then he's going to transgress a rabbinical inju- he's, he's, go- he's going to transgress the Torah law. Therefore, the rabbi said he's not allowed to do it. Therefore, this rabbi in the Talmud said to his child that he's not allowed to do it because there is a rabbinical injunction not to do it. That's one way to understand it. Or another way to understand the Talmud is, is that there is no rabbinical injunction not to perform a therapeutic task. Even though one might by accident come to 
and an inadvertent transgression of the prohibition. However, those rabbis were stringent on themselves. They just said, you know what, even though the rabbis, the, the, there is no rabbinic injunction, we're still going to be stringent. Why should my child do it? He could still come to an inadvertent prohibition. I'll let somebody else do it. So, a lot, a lot of, the, uh, a lot of the, the rabbis who explain this Gemara understand it in the second way. That all it is, is just a stringency. No, it's just a reiterate. The Torah prohibits inflicting a wound upon one's parent. If one does it for a therapeutic purpose, then the Torah does not prohibit it because it's a mitzvah to be a doctor. However, is there a rabbinic injunction to do a procedure as a doctor, even though the Torah permits it, because one should suspect that maybe inadvertently he'll make a mistake or do something he was not supposed to do, and then that's not going to be part of the therapeutic procedure, and therefore he will transgress the Torah prohibition. Is there such a rabbinic injunction? So a lot of the authorities learn the Talmud as that there is no such rabbinic injunction. The rabbis never made such a decree. Once you're performing a therapeutic a procedure, you can do it. There is no problem. Why did these two rabbis in the Talmud not allow it? The reason why they did not allow it is because they were stringent upon themselves. Stringent. Stringent upon themselves. Given that understanding, since there are opinions that understand the Talmud this way, plus there are monetary considerations, therefore, these responses say that if that's one of the considerations, then we will permit the child to do the procedure, even though there is another doctor that is willing to do it for money. Okay? So that's, that's uh, consideration number two. What if money was not a consideration? What if the, pa- uh, the parent who's ill, their doctor child, was incredibly wealthy? So he could easily pay for someone else to do it. Then he would have to pay for somebody else to do it. But he should then, in that case. Then he should, then, unless there are other considerations, which we discussed, like, uh, let's say, life and death situation, or perhaps maybe something else, which we'll point out if we have time, then, uh, then he, uh, he has to pay for the other person to do it. The other question I have is, you know, we're just talking about procedures, but uh, lots of times uh, uh, doctors' children will prescribe medication for them. And just like medication can have a good outcome, they can have a very bad outcome too. It can cause very significant damage if, by prescribing the medication also. And so are they just focusing just on bloodletting and inadvertent wounds or medical decisions? Yeah, that, that's what the concern is. I know how to do this procedure, but it could go bad, okay? And, and I want to be stringent upon myself. Right. Well, I can give you medicine for your diabetes, all right? And it could drop your blood sugar way too low, and you can wind up in the hospital and God forbid something can happen. Right. So is that a... That, that is definitely a concern. Are you allowed to... Uh, that's a concern just for a regular doctor. Are you allowed to give something to someone that might be poisonous for them, right? It might yeah, so I'm just saying here, if we're, we're just focusing on procedures. Right, saying, we're focusing... Is, the, it, is it any medical decision at all? Not just procedures, prescribing a medication. Is that any different? It's definitely a consideration. But if the doctor, if the doctor feels that that's the proper thing to do, okay, if the doctor feels that that's the proper thing to do, and there is a reaction that the patient has, even though the doctor felt that that was the right thing to do, then the doctor is not liable. I understand that, but yeah. that's an inadvertent, is that the same thing as... No, he has to do the procedure. He has to administer the, the, the medication. Because, because he's, I'm sorry, he has to prescribe the medication. 
because he feels that that's the way that the person is going to get right. be healed. If a child does that and the parent is damaged, is that the same thing as an inadvertent wound? And you're better off having another doctor prescribe the medication instead of the child? I, 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 I'm not sure, but I, I would think not. Because the, the, our, our um, discussion is focused on infli specifically inflicting wounds. And the Torah's prohibition specifically states to strike a child. Is to strike a child. I don't think giving something which might be poisonous or toxic to to uh, to one's uh, to one's parent is uh, is who goes within that within that, within that injunction. But it's, hmm. it could because I think with Mark here in terms you know back then things were different, but we expound upon it today. Bloodletting was basically you know, cure everything with bloodletting, so bloodletting can cause a problem when you're seeing a exact wound. What Mark's saying should <coughs> the terms we're using here is inflicting a wound or doing an invasive procedure, be it a diagnostic procedure or a treatment. Uh, by what Mark's saying, even a, a treating the patient, period. Because treatment you can inflict a wound. And with uh, was it Rob no, 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 the other two rabbis, they didn't want their son going to lance the boy all the other to remove the splinter because they could cause more of a problem. The same thing can happen with an incorrect diagnosis or a correct diagnosis and correct treatment, such as you know, diabetes, if the sugar goes too low, too high, or if you kill the, or mess up the kidneys, uh, and create an additional problem. Right. If you are the son treating your, or, or the daughter treating your parent, versus um, having somebody else do it. Right, so I think that it doesn't, it, we're, we're talking specifically when you physically, with your, with your, with your hands, inflict a wound upon your father that's, or, 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 or mother, that, that's the situation that we're talking about. So it wouldn't apply by prescribing a, a medication that might make a person you know, bleed or, or, or do something to his blood sugar or whatever. That, that's a consideration. Right. But that's not it's a consideration not, as far as this injunction is concerned. It's not the same case. Right, it's not the same case. Here we're talking about it specifically when you physically actually do, uh, do a, pr a procedure which might cause your, 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 your parent to, uh, to bleed. Okay. Well, that just, what about if you just ask, can a, uh, a son write an order to have uh, a parent, uh, a procedure done on a parent? Or does that have to be done by another physician? Uh, I guess the question in that situation would be is, is writing an order uh, creating an agency to do it? Or is it just an order? If you're creating an agency to do it, then perhaps maybe there's a problem. Uh, if if it's uh, if it's just an order and somebody else does it, that's right. the procedure. Then this, as far as this injunction is concerned, it's not a problem. Okay. okay, I think we're a little bit out of time, so let me just uh, let me conclude. There are other considerations also involved, such as the parents granting permission. What happens if the father, if the if the parents say, I, uh, I I give my child I give my child to do whatever procedure he wants to do, and if it inadvertently he makes me bleed or whatever it is, I I I, I forgive him. He can do it. That's, that's another consideration, uh, which is on, that's on, on page five. Okay, now other considerations are also is what is the halakhic definition of a wound? Okay, uh, just briefly, uh, you know, every time I clap my hands, there's capillary bleeding. At least that's what uh, Rabbi J.D. of Black told me. Every time I bleed, every time I clap my hands, anything I do is bleeding. What is considered to be a wound is also a consideration. Okay. And that, that, that has, the ramification that I, of, the, of, of that idea is, is an injection. Can I administer an injection? So the question would be is, 
if I administer an injection that's into the into the veins of of, of of the parent, or perhaps maybe it's into the muscles, it's intramuscular injection, right? Whether that, those are considered to be wounds or not, that's that's a discussion in itself too, right? Probably the vein, an injection into the vein is 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 definitely a wound, but is an intramuscular injection a wound? Uh, because it only causes capillary bleeding, and if you use a needle that's very thin, right? Uh, you know, it's minimal. It's not any more than, than clapping one's hands. Perhaps maybe one is allowed to do it. That's another consideration. Um, also, the parameters of what is considered to be that there's no one else available. That's why if I have to wait in the waiting room for three hours, if, they, if I have to go to the emergency room and wait for six hours, for, uh, you know, for, for, for the nurse to see me, to take my blood pressure, while my son is, is, is standing right there and he's willing to do all the, everything that's necessary to be done, is that considered like there's someone else available? Or can I just, do, or, or, or it's, like it's considered like there's no one else available because of the expenditure of effort that I have upon myself. That's another consideration as far as the law is concerned. Um, so in conclusion, we can basically say as follows, that the basic law is is that when there is somebody else available to do the procedure, then once a child cannot perform a procedure on their parent, a therapeutic procedure on their parents. However, if there are considerations in the case, and every single case is unique, then a competent halakhic authority should be somebody who can, who can answer these questions and can take all these considerations into account, should be consulted. And in certain situations, like we've quoted in, in, in some responsa, the answer will be is, even though there is somebody else available, the child can do it. <clears throat> this question, uh, I was told, is not 100% relevant because there is a, an etiquette, or there is a uh, secular standard that uh, in the, amongst, amongst doctors, that doctors do not perform uh, operations, uh, these type of procedures, on their parents just as, as, far, as far as the ethics in the, in, in the hospitals goes. That's, that, that's what I was told. However, I did see a response, and one of the responses which I saw, which is Chubas van Hagot, um, which discusses specifically that case, where the father, of the, uh, uh, the father requested that his son do the operation upon him, and he insisted that nobody else should do it. Okay, since we're out of time, oh, we have to but, conclude you know, it's at, so at this juncture. You know, it's so interesting that you said five intention, and then you didn't say anything about it, because I have a quick question. Yeah. Nowadays, a lot of doctors perform things because, not because they want to prevent or treat something, but because they're worried about later complications that the patient will complain about if they don't do such and such. So they might, they might do, like, you know, spinal tap or whatever, even though it's not actually necessary for the procedure, because they're worried about down the road yeah, the lawyer's down the road. So what if you have a, a parent who's a hypochondriac and says, do me this test? You, it sounds to me like you're supposed to say no. If the, it, it, this is left up to the decision of the doctor. If a doctor feels that a procedure is necessary... But what if he knows it's not necessary? If he knows it's not necessary, then it's not necessary. I know, but... He should be, I mean, ethically, violation should be doing it. He shouldn't be doing it. It's not necessary. Yeah. Be but they do, don't they? Well... They shouldn't be doing it. I mean, and there are certain documents, like in any any business, some people that do it the right way, and some people don't. You should stay away from it. If a doctor feels that he wants to be cautious, yeah. even though the, the procedure is quote-unquote not necessary, but caution is a necessity. Yeah, if he feels he needs to be cautious, then he should do it. to protect himself from being sued right. and he knows it's not necessary, you should find another way. Right, right. Well, I, I, but it's not, it's not an emergency. Yeah. No, That's not, by the way, what I meant by intention. 
What I meant by intention is, is what happens if your intention is to inflict the wound? Or your intention is not to inflict the wound, your intention is to do something else, and in the process, you inflict the wound. That's what I meant. Okay. So that's what I was, I was wondering, how come a lot of, because uh, a lot of Jewish, Jewish thought revolves around what a person...